0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is out today joining us in his stead, uh, Washington commentary columnist, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, uh, and uh, American Enterprise Institute scholar, Matthew Cottonetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Thanks for having and me. And as ever, senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, So the big news, the big, big, big news is that the Supreme Court late last night failed, refused to stay or suspend action on Texas's new highly restrictive abortion law law. it did not rule on the constitutionality or lack thereof of the law, but but d- d- but by a five to four measure said that the law, which went into effect yesterday, I guess, September 1st, could continue to be enforced uh, while it was adjudicated in the courts. Um, and uh, what we are being told by supporters of abortion rights and Democrats everywhere is that Roe v. Wade has now been overturned. Uh, Effectively, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, uh, which, of course, is not true. I say, of course, maybe I shouldn't say, of course, because most people are going to believe that that's the case if this is what the line is proffered. But the Supreme Court said there are going to be rulings on the constitutionality of this law and on the and the Supreme Court is hearing a specific challenge to Roe and Casey, its follow-up case in the coming term that should provide greater clarity on this question uh, and the specific constitutionality of the Texas law has to do with what uh, everybody uh, in the case describes as its novel uh, structure, uh, which involves, as I understand it, Applying the kinds of punishments uh, that could be applied, that were applied in the 80s around the ambit of drunk driving to abortion, which is to say that you are now permitted to go after, sue, or do whatever to people surrounding an abortion Uh, doctors, nurses, uh, the
1: person who rents out an abortion clinic uh, building, Abe. But I think it's a little different from that in that you don't have to be connected to to the um, uh, the the abortion at all in any way. Right.
0: Right. So right. So in other words, like you're not suing uh, a bar for serving somebody because you were the parent of the kid who was killed in the drunk driving accident. Anybody can effectively. It's not really like a citizen's arrest. It's like a citizen's tort, I guess, more than anything else and um this was designed to is- elude the constitutional question of the uh legality of abortion that's that's that it was it was it's a it's a it's a conceit to say we're not questioning that abortion is legal what we're questioning is that the that the performing abortions should not be legal after 6 weeks I mean, it seems to be this Talmudic effort, effort to create a Talmudic distinction, Matt.
2: Also uh, designed to avoid the court
0: from enjoining the law,
2: right? right? Because typically these laws deputize state officials to uh, prosecute and, right. and, and to enforce the law. But since this doesn't do that, um, the, the court, as the majority said, uh, when they allowed the law to go into effect... It presents a unique challenge. Uh, to who's this, they, have to, they have to go through a whole judicial process to even understand uh, who has standing to sue, what are the constitutional issues, right. uh, because it's thrown everything into the private sphere and not right. the political sphere for this very reason, so that the law can go into effect. And you can have, I mean, in Texas right now, it is as though Roe v. Wade does not exist. Just right. in Texas. Everything's right. limited to Texas, and I think that's one distinction that a
0: lot of the uh, abortion rights crowd is, uh, is missing out. Well, because what I think what they're saying is, and it, 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 it makes logical sense, should this stand up, should courts find that this stands up, this would be the model right. where you would not have to challenge the constitutionality of the procedure or the act itself uh, in order to have it affected, or, or again, as you say, create a sort of uh, separation of powers problem, or you know, sort of gov- go- government rights versus, or you know, government enforcement versus personal rights thing, it becomes something else. Now, here's what's interesting to me because the uh, the minority uh, led by Sonia Sotomayor simply says that this is patently unconstitutional because its purpose is to. Is to uh, ban abortions, and abortions, at least uh, as we understand them now, uh, have uh, theoretically, though they have been limited and almost un, you know, un, un- unlimited right to abortion up to the moment of birth. Uh, states have restricted this in various ways, and there have been restrictions on it in various ways. But, but the, but the idea that abortion is a is a is a right uh, remains, and and so any effort to restrict that uh, in that way, then it is unconstitutional. Um, but here's the interesting aspect of this, which is, this is a law. It was passed by a state legislature, elected state legislature, and then signed into law by an elected governor. This, I believe, despite the fact that every liberal wants you to believe that the, that the majority on the court that ruled it is doing it because this is really what they want is just to ban abortion that you know what you have here is a law passed by a state legislature signed by a governor that you don't just cavalierly say no you can't do it sorry separation of powers means the supreme court is supposed to show deference to uh, elected political actors who create and provide and do let you know and 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 enact legislation according to constitutionally mandated rules. Uh, You pass a law, governor signs the law, everybody involved in that was chosen by the people, deputized by the people to do this. And you don't just wave a hand and say, I'm sorry, I don't like the look of this. You have to go through a process it's a higher standard than just saying no. I don't like it. It's a higher level of for a court to overturn an existing law from its root. That's actually a very big thing, and you don't do it, you know, with a, with a wave of the hand. Despite the fact that it's about everybody's favorite. Civil, you know every leftist liberal's favorite civil right in the United States, Christine. But, but
3: this is part. This is, I think, why we're seeing such a a kind of uh, hyperbolic overreaction on the part of the left uh, today about this. You know the 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 dirty secret of Roe is that even liberal uh, jurisprudence has has acknowledged that it's very bad law. <laughs> it was badly written. It created a right that I, that constitutionally was suspect at the time. And to go to your point, John, what was happening in this country just before 1973 was that states were creating their own regulations and restrictions, and there was variation. And, you know, one of the arguments made against Roe is that had the court stayed out of it, there would have been some sort of consensus because public opinion polling on abortion has been fairly consistent year over year for decades, which is that People uh, support very few restrictions in the first trimester or none. Um, It starts to become more questionable in the second trimester. And in the third trimester, they support a lot of restrictions. That has generally been the public's opinion about abortion for a very long time, despite the rhetoric on either side of this debate. And so I think one of the reasons there's this overreaction, like now abortion is going to be illegal anywhere, is that it's exposing what's always been the weakness of the Roe decision. Well, I mean, Roe... uh... Roe is a landmark
0: in so many ways that we could spend 10 hours uh, on the ways in which Roe revolutionized the way we think about everything, which was not its purpose, right? Its purpose was simply to say, okay, let's just let this happen. Everybody I know is for it. <laughs> you know, if you're you know, Harry Blackman or whatever, like everybody I know thinks abortion's good. So we're just gonna say abortion is good, and that that this is the nature of Liberal jurisprudence in that in that era that you sort of work back from your conclusion and 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 sort of enshrine you know sort of good thinking people's ideas about things, Um, and uh, it 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 the uh, the brazenness of it and the idea that you know this the decision was made uh, according to the penumbras and emanations that emerge from the Constitution rather than constitutional language itself created the back created a half-century backlash that I think arguably, this is one of Matt's great scholarly subjects, gave birth to the conservative interest in the judiciary, the switch of, of, um, of Southern evangelicals from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, the rise of Ronald Reagan, the rise of the new right, uh, the uh, interest uh, on the part of Conservatives, uh, as we move forward, in um, burrowing into state and local legislatures and political offices in order to uh, enact, in order to do something to counteract the effects of, of a decision that they believe was leading to uh, millions of murders of the unborn, and and on that. So, is there? I mean, if you think about it, is there a more significant single act in modern conservative history than, than Roe? I mean, it, oh, it, in, it,
2: it'd be hard to name yeah. one. I mean, um, of course, you know, uh, there were conservative, um, critiques of the judiciary before Roe, um, uh, mainly on issues of, of civil rights. And it actually, when you look into it, um, It was a sort of a slow burn reaction to Roe. When Roe came down, uh, conservative Catholics were outraged. And, um, you know, the first pro-life rally, it kind of turned into a scuffle, was led by Brent Bozell, uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s uh, brother-in-law and the founder of uh, the radical Catholic magazine Triumph uh, in 1973. Um, It wasn't until uh, Jerry Falwell, uh, in 1979, 1980, that evangelical Protestants adopted the pro-life uh, cause for their own. Uh, in the, uh, and that, as you say, uh, helped uh, uh, Reagan's campaign immensely uh, in 1980. And if, let's not forget, Ronald Reagan, as governor, signed one of the most liberal abortion laws uh, he did at, at and, the time. Right, yeah. and, then, and then by 84, so again, the, the slow burn, so a yeah. decade after Roe, in eighty four, when um, just the public discourse was rife with um, uh, uh, talk of religion and the public square, Richard Niehaus's book "The Naked Public Square" comes out around this time. Huge prayer rally, uh, and I, I believe it was the Houston Convention in eighty four. Houston Convention eighty four. Yes, the uh, National Reagan, Prayer Breakfast. Reagan attended. Yeah. Um, Reagan releases a book, "Abortion and the Conscience of the Nation," uh, where he comes, you know, uh, and he says that that was a mistake. That, that state law he signed. So there you see the beginning of uh, uh, like a you know, like a giant ship. Clearly the Republican Party is moving toward the pro-life cause, but it was still under debate. I mean, let's not forget. I mean, even in '96, John, uh, you will recall there was huge fights over the platform about uh, whether more moderate uh, Republicans like Christy Todd Whitman, were they the future of the party? How seriously was Dole gonna take abortion? So one of the um, there's no question that Roe was central, but w- it's amazing to me uh, when you look at the contemporary Republican
0: party concern of
2: just how pro-life it's become.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, there was the final test of this going back into political history. You mentioned Bob Dole, who was sort of like, I'm pro-life, but I'm winking at you. I'm winking. You know, I'm not really pro-life, but I got to be pro-life because that's what you have to do to be me, but I don't really want it. And then his wife runs for president in 2000 as a pro-choice Republican testing the question of whether or not that view could get purchased with suburban women and the women in in all this. And it turned out that uh, despite her uh, inarguable talents, as a as a political player and Liddy Dole was a very impressive kind of, uh, you know, down home populist crowd pleasing type. Uh, she got nowhere because the issue had moved far beyond and, uh, that. And there was no room in the Republican Party for that kind of view. And then we saw
2: that again in a with Giuliani. And of course, what better test is there than Donald Trump, who reverses himself on abortion? famously because he said that he had a relative or no a friend a son's friend uh or the child of a friend the friend thought about getting an abortion did not get the abortion and then this child grew up to be a very impressive person in trump's view and so this for him <laughs> was the moment when he realized that he and he of course in many ways the most pro-life president ever uh, in terms of the policies he he, um, he enacted. that's
0: that's an important point because there were t- the two most pro-life presidents ever You had a a, a sort of pro-life president in George W. Bush, but he was not the most pro-life president ever. And you had a pro-life president in Reagan, who was not the most pro-life president. The two most pro-life were pro-choice guys who went pro-life. That's George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. Why? Because they had to slather it on. They had to say, basically, you know I don't believe this, but I'm going to do whatever you want in order to unite, bring you onto my side. That's my, my. I know they both talked a good talk, but my general sense is when, when uh, George H.W. Bush was president, he basically winked at the pro-lifers and said, look, you know I'm not one of you, I'm not from you. I'm just ceding this issue to you. We're going to push for Casey, which was the effort to overturn Roe. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm handing the healthcare bureaucracy to you to the extent that I can. And that's what I'm going to do to show you that you can support me. And Trump did almost exactly the same thing in 2016. He brought in Heritage and various other people and he said, what do you want? And they were like, we want these 800 judges. And he's like, whatever you want. I just want to be president. Just tell me what to do on this issue and I'll do it. And so he did. And so in that weird way showing fealty to the cause when it's actually not your cause. Like if you're a, if you're a principal pro-lifer like George W. Bush, that's where you can say things like, I think you're going too far with this. I don't know. I don't really know that that's a really wise decision to go that extreme. Like we got to be incremental about this or Reagan who like didn't even go to pro-life rallies. He sent right. He sent well, and his first,
2: messages. his first Supreme court, uh, nominee Sandra Day O'Connor, right. who was famous yeah. for sponsoring a pro-choice bill when she was in the Arizona State Legislature, so uh, Reagan's pro-life record—I mean, right—is uh, not it does yeah. not approach uh, okay. either HWWs or Trumps.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about what where the rubber meets the road. here. Right. Can I just where... add one? Oh yeah, point. go ahead here, please.
1: Um, I think it's also true that uh, on the other side that the United Democratic. Position of being pro-choice wasn't always, wasn't ever thus. Um, uh, People forget that. I mean, there's the the prominent example of uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, for example. Well, at Jimmy Carter,
0: this right. is the point. In 1976, the pro-life party in the United States was the Democratic Party. Jimmy Carter was a candidate that came out of the Southern Baptist Conference who talked about having lust in his heart. And the platform of the Democratic Party in 1976, if I'm not mistaken, was pro-life. One of the reasons that the slow burn turned into a fire was a feeling of betrayal on the part of Southern Baptists like Jerry Falwell, who was a Democrat in 1976, that Carter had gone into the presidency and had ceded social issues to elite liberals. That was part of Carter. Carter had sort of gotten elected as the moral, conservative, Baptist guy who like taught Sunday school and talked about lust in his heart and all of that. But that wasn't how he governed and they felt betrayed and abortion was one of the it wasn't the only issue but it was a leading issue in that matter and then there was the simple fact that the the argument or the idea that abortion stopped a beating heart um gripped people in a way that very few grassroots issues have ever gripped anybody and there's this idea that it's all first it was only catholics and then it's then it's Protestants. But I mean, it's simply the fact that as we've gone on over the last 40 or 50 years, as ultrasounds have, as all, as all this stuff has happened, the discomfort over abortion uh, among people who are not just, you know, extreme religious conservatives has grown. And, uh, and so it, it's a, that's how grassroots issues work,
2: Matt. No, I just want to pick take off from that and, and, piggyback on what Abe was saying, because the polarization is working both ways. This is another example of uh, extreme polarization in our country, whereas that um, the the breakdown of public opinion that Christine mentioned is is absolutely the case. It's extremely stable. You have people thinking that you should not have abortion in the first trimester, you should have it subject to regulation in the second, and um, or rather, you sh- it should be legal in the first, subject to regulation in the second, illegal in the third. And that's, that's decades-long public opinion. Now, um, Look at what this Texas law does. It <laughs> you know, outlaws it in the first trimester, six weeks, <laughs> still the first trimester. But what do what do the laws in uh, Virginia and uh, New York allow? Right up into the third, right until birth, born alive. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can see there that the the, the the extremes are working as Abe says in both ways. And and, for and the, it was probably the Democratic Party's extremism, I think, that is that. That kept fueling the fire that we talked about. We, um, right. I mean, it was Bob Casey, right? The um, Bob Casey Senior, who was denied a the speaking governor,
0: of, who was the governor of Pennsylvania, who yeah, was, den- denied, yeah. a, was denied a speaking slot in a, right. a ninety two convention, I think. Um, yeah, and yeah. he of course was the plaintiff in the. In the original, he was the plaintiff in, case, in the in the, in, that, yeah. in the case that came up nineteen years after Roe. That was to be that was supposedly going to be the decision that said that Roe was. Uh, was improperly, wrongly decided on the basis of improper constitutional law. And uh, Anthony Kennedy, who had been chosen because it was thought he was a nice Catholic boy, uh, as the third person to be nominated for that seat, and he would like go along uh, decided that that was not the role he was going to play. He was going to be the historic defender of the mysteries of existence uh, in that way. But I want to talk about this politically because I think it's this is where it gets very interesting. I mean, not that this isn't all interesting, um, but everything about this is interesting. But abortion has been a rallying cry and an organizing principle for Republicans for more than 40 years and i think you could you could argue that despite the fact that it alienates liberal women and it does this and it does that it's been a spectacular political organizing success for republicans to have this issue increasingly in in their own pocket you got nowhere to go if this is something that is important to you you can't it's if this is if this if you think that abortion is murder you have no choice but to be a republican that's that's practically. Um, and, and so, uh, that has been the animating principle and liberals have been trying to get liberals to vote on abortion forever. And there's very little evidence that anybody in the liberal coalition votes on abortion, except as part of a general panoply of social liberal issues that they agree on. Now, There is a thing here. This is the question that is going to animate public discussion of this for the next year, two years, four years, eight years, whatever, which is forget transgender bathroom. Forget the issues that are, you know, that really do push things into very uncomfortable places. You now have something that a lot of people think is a settled right that is now under extremely effective attack, and the courts may not gallop to the rescue. Can, Matt, as a student of this, can Democrats harness the Texas law and what it represents and the possibility that it will be duplicated elsewhere and make it a grassroots issue that will be transformative for them uh, with a lot of these people who have really not had to vote on it or, like, haven't had to drag themselves over glass to go to the polls to vote on it because the courts just kept protecting the right.
2: I think there's a chance that it, uh, the Texas uh, legislature handed Joe Biden a lifeline uh, with, this le- with this bill. And, and it goes to what I was saying about the, the, um, uh, when the restrictions are in place, uh, the, the six-week thing in the middle of the first trimester. It also, it it bans abortions in the case of rape and incest, which are the two carve-outs that even many mainstream Republicans uh, who say that they're pro-life, say that, you know, they make exceptions for rape and incest. In fact, that harmed uh, Marco Rubio's primary campaign, I believe, in 2016, because he did not have those two exceptions in his pro-life stance. (laughs) Um, I think the American public, independents in particular, who still actually determine the winners in elections, despite us, uh, avoiding that fact, um, <laughs> it, uh, it, they repel from their extremes. So if they see Ralph Northam in between his, you know, uh, uh stints and blackface saying that, yeah, well, you know, it's very done very hygienically and compassionately when we kill this, this infant after it's been born. Um, uh, most people say that's ridiculous, but I also think that there are going to be a lot of independents who look at this Texas and cause this is growing way too far. Right, And and then if it rolls into the Mississippi case, which the court is hearing this fall and which probably they'll announce their decision next June, um, if it rolls into uh, a um, either a repeal of Roe of of the holdings in Roe and and Casey or a major carve out that allows laws like this to take place and and, and others, um, you could definitely see, I think, um, and, uh, an infusion of energy on the progressive left. And, you know, they ran the war on doesn't women have campaign to the in 2012. Right. right. It could right. be to independence be to say left. this is too much. Yeah. Right. But like, I, the, the war on women campaign, I think in 2012, a lot of political professionals will say that hurt Romney, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it ended up hurting Romney. And so you can easily see a replay um, next year and in uh, 2024.
3: But could I just add one thing in terms of what the extremes sometimes alienate the people who they think they're playing to um, on the pro-abortion side of this? And it, it comes from a tweet that I, I sent uh on our text thread from Richard Hanenio who said you can't screen for down syndrome before about 10 weeks and something like 80% of down syndrome fetuses are aborted. So if red States ban abortion, we could see a world where they have five times as many children with down syndrome and similar numbers for other disabilities that was tweeted without any acknowledgement of the horrific implication of what he was saying. First of all, it's not 80 percent. It's well, well north of 90 percent of women who get amnio to test for Downs abort the child. So the idea, though, that like this is another part of what we can we should expect responsible people to have the right to do if they don't want a kid who has Downs, that doesn't play so well with with the suburban moderate woman, she sees that and thinks, wow, that sounds pretty callous. That actually sounds a little like eugenics, almost like the mindset is very unappealing.
0: And this is where I want to go. Let's think this through a little bit here, because um, Christine mentions this kind of extreme eugenic, liberal eugenics position. But, you know, there is a there's a kind of fan service represented by the Texas bill, which itself relies on the existence of Roe and the constitutional right to an abortion to allow the extremism that they have enacted here, which is to say they're playing at it. It's like, uh, you know what, we're going to do all this. Let's we're designing it very cleverly to try to you know, evade the question of facing up to Roe. But. Joe over here doesn't like inc- doesn't like the incest and rape exception. So we're just we're going to p- put that in too. Uh, much of what happened over the 20 years after Casey failed in the court was that the most sophisticated and the most successful foes and opponents of abortion decided that the right way to handle this was to chip away at the extremist permissive structure of abortion third trimester stuff uh uh, you know partial birth abortion all of that because that's where you could gain a consensus in the country about as christine's that that goes as matt you said like that goes too far ralph northam's born alive thing or or eugenics goes too far or something like that this is like the reverse this is like uh, you know I hate those liberals. So we're, you know, and they hate. The incest and and you know they love the incest and the rape exception. So we're getting that out of there. This well, the, is right there. <clears throat> the, for issue, you. the issue as... of
3: viability and fetal heartbeat has also been kind of at play for yeah. for years now, and and viability is is growing. Like the the, the age at which a mm-hmm. child can be taken from its mother's womb and kept alive has has as, uh, broadened. I mean it's it's a yeah. miracle of modern science. But yeah. that those again will also are not part of the much more complicated and sophisticated discussion we should be having about. Abortion, which this law does not
1: do. To to John's point, as with every other aspect of our politics these days, there is an element of trolling here. I mean, that's that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, that's what I mean by fan service. It's like trolling and fan service are fan
0: service is like you know I'm going to put in the most obscure you know anti-abortion rule that I can in order to wave at you. You know, uh, and see if, uh, you know, there might be a billionaire in Texas who, you know, this is this is his main issue and you'll get to raise a lot of money for the for the Texas state
1: party because he doesn't because he doesn't like the incest and rape exception. Well, I, I think as with trolling elsewhere in our politics, it's yet to be determined whether or not it's actually politically successful or more often an own goal. Right, um, and I and I think what what Matt's getting at here is the, is the very real possibility that this could be an own goal for the for, for the Republicans. Right, and I, I I also
0: think that this gets back to the horrible the nature, and we've been talking about this in relation to Afghanistan, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, the nature of landmark moments in in American politics and how they have bizarre, long-reaching consequences and do things that they were never designed to do and unintended consequences. And certainly the liberals on the court in 1972 and the people who sort of first went into sort of the idea that there was a private sphere in Griswold v. Connecticut and then on to Roe v. Wade and all this, they didn't know that they were going to trigger the creation of an entire counter-movement That was going to say the country that you are trying to design is a country we do not want to live in. And you are trying to create a moral frame for American life that we reject. And uh, we are not without resources. We don't have the universities and we don't have newspapers and we don't have media, but we have very large numbers and we are indefatigable. And so, you know, that was not what happened here. Was totally unexpected. I mean, if you could go back, uh, you know, send someone back in a time machine. If you were, you know, like a, a smart political, if you were Rui Teixeira or something like that, and say it's 1970, you could. You, you, you're a visitor from the future, and you go into Harry Blackman's chambers, and you're like, I don't know if you should do this. Like y- y- the world, a world in which state legislatures handle this question is going to be a world that is going to is going to contain some of the populist right that is going to sort of do things to the country you are really not going to like. Um, and I just think that, you know, when you look at this as a sort of culmination, I do think you could have a real counter movement on the part of Democrats that will rival. We've already seen a grassroots movement, an anti-conservative or an anti-right grassroots movement, or an anti-populist. That was... The Women's March and the anti-Trump stuff. And remember, there were 4 million people in the streets on Inauguration Day in 2017. And that was what won the election in 2018 for the Republicans and
1: for the Democrats. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and there might have been reason to think that that would not have survived into the first post-Trump midterms. Right. Um, right. Sure. And now, as, as Matt says, um, perhaps um, Joe Biden has been, been thrown a lifeline right okay one other thing i want to mention uh in defense of the law
0: or not in defense of the law but in defense of the uh the the uh insanity uh of the reaction on the part of liberals and the left to the law is this texas is the second largest state in the union it's not wyoming it's not montana it's not a little state where people snuck in and you know you only took a couple of votes to get things to get you into the state senate and all of that texas is a Highly complex, huge state, the fastest growing state in the country, the, you know, um, uh, arguably, you know, one of the two states that serve as a harbinger for the future and its state legislature passed this law and its governor signed it into law. Uh, liberals evade the meaning of that at their peril. It's one thing to say, Georgia's bad. So we're you know, we want to boycott Georgia. You can't boycott Texas. There is no boycotting of Texas.
2: Matt, go ahead. Well, I'm fascinated by this, John, because um, it's amazing to me that the first time that most of the country is hearing about Senate Bill 8 is after it's gone into effect. When we had the uh, Texas Democrats deny a quorum over the voting rights uh, a bill uh, you know, uh, it, it, sending us into weeks of national debate over whether Texas was eliminating democracy, and you had the Texas Democrats hiding out, and of course, not wearing masks in their plane on their private jet. That they flew in a national <laughs> airport and wandering around, you know, spreading coronavirus. But why didn't why did the Texas Democrats do that for this bill? And it, it, it's interesting, and, it be, and I think it's uh, I think it's because. And even as I say, that's a potential lifeline for Biden, or it's a, the secondary consequences of either this law um, being deemed constitutional, which I, I think in the end, it, if Roe holds it, it will not be deemed constitutional. But maybe Roe goes or is, is carved out. Is that the truth? Is when most people are confronted with the reality of abortion, they don't like it. <laughs> they don't want to talk about it. And even though there's been, I think, um, some some radicalization among the abortion rights groups in recent years to say we want to own abortion, you know, we want to we we, we want we want to be proud of abortion and and that that type of thing. The the politics of of this issue I do not do not trend toward the most radical position on either side, and, I, and and so I think Texas Democrats may have really mishandled this entire law. Mm-hmm. Uh, by one choosing to to stake their ground on voting rights instead of, you know, right. so-called women's rights, and then waiting until after the law goes into uh, actually goes into effect to have this emergency uh, challenge to it that was denied.
0: Okay, let me let me just uh, posit this and then uh, go to a spot, uh, Christine. Let me posit this: uh, the voting rights law brings in. Minorities, right? That's the whole idea is that it's uh, minority voters are being disenfranchised, and that's you know in the Democratic fantasy vision, that's African Americans and Latinos. Um, African Americans and Latinos are not full throated supporters of abortion rights. Voting rights is a consensus issue on the part of Democrats because it does not involve or implicate liberal social justice issues. This is about, you're trying to deny me the franchise. It's a very elemental thing. I don't think it's true. I think it's a misrepresentation of what's going on. But uh, you, may, you take your stand on abortion in a state like Texas, and the, and the African Americans and Hispanic pastors that you need to help organize your voting rights crusade are not going to be on the front lines with you.
3: No, It's a really good point. And it speaks to what Matt was saying as well, which is that when do you remember there was that that sort of push a few years ago to say, you know, shout your abortion and all these, you know, Planned Parenthood and other groups were trying to get women to just like celebrate the fact that they'd had an abortion. They quickly shut that down because people were sort of horrified by that. It was like. But that just did not, like you say, Matt, most people are like, and I think, honestly, one of the best slogans uh, on abortion was, I believe it was from President Clinton. I think he said safe, legal and rare. Wasn't that the idea? And that actually captures a lot of what the moderate middle that's been consistent about abortion wants. And so I think on either side, those extremes don't speak to that. It's an uncomfortable position because it's not clear morally to either side, but it is kind of where the American people have been. And very
0: importantly, I would say it is not clear to people who have participated in it either, which is to say that, Matt, you said they don't like it. Tens of millions, if not uh, hundred, you know, tens of millions of women have had abortions. They don't want it. Apparently, they don't want to walk around screaming about their abortions um, because they do it. And they feel guilty about it or they do it or they think it was a necessary evil or some version of that um, or enough of them feel that way that they are made discomfited by the demand that they somehow embrace something that um, they would prefer to stop thinking about or forget ever happened. They did it and they would like to forget it ever happened. Now, it may be the case that we're really at risk and really a threat and people really do think that they turned their lives around by having an abortion or, you know, they can't imagine what their life would be today if had, at the age of 17 they had had the baby instead of having the abortion. And now they're like looking at their own children and saying, I can't, I don't want them to lose that option. And so I better come out and, you know, be an activist on this issue. That's possible. But it, it is clearly an issue that discomforts the very people who have taken advantage of its legality. That's an unusual thing. It's one of the many things that makes abortion an unusual and complicated and highly combustible issue. And uh, you know, did I, I, I? You know, we were so focused on COVID and Afghanistan and and and, and floods and earthquakes and whatever and all this stuff uh, and voting rights and t- t- Texas legislature. That you know. It, it's now clear to me that this is going to be a major issue in a way it hasn't been, I think, in 30 years since since the Casey decision, since the sort of run up to the Casey decision, and it is kind of. I think this is what your point is, Matt. It's like snuck up on us, but weirdly
3: unawares. And one one quick thing about whether this will benefit Biden and the Democrats in the midterms, Biden's now already said that he's directing um, the Office of the White House Counsel to launch a what he called whole of government effort to respond to this decision. He wants to task the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice to, as he says, see that steps, see what steps the federal government can take to ensure that women in Texas have access to safe and legal abortions is protected by Roe and what legal tools we have to insulate women and providers from the impact of Texas's scheme. So this idea that, you know, this is exactly what they did with, with uh, trying to shut down, you know, eviction moratoriums and whatnot. I mean, he does not have a great track record of respecting the Constitution when it comes to using f- executive federal power to to bend uh, uh, things to his will. But that could, in effect, undermine whatever gain he might make uh, politically from from the reaction to the decision.
0: Right. Well, um, so here we are uh, and we have another we have another crisis on our hands. So that's great. And you know what else is great? Uh, the Traza glass chair mats. Because chances are you got one of those chief plastic uh, chair mats that's dented and cracked. You know, you roll your desk chair on it. Maybe it's even turning that weird yellow-brown color. Well, I want to tell you about this premium alternative, a glass chair mat by Vitraza. Vitraza glass chair mats are made of super strong glass, protected with a nanotech coating. This mat is legitimately beautiful and will take the look of your office to a whole new level. Your chair will roll smoothly and silently all around it and glide on it in a perfect way. Comfort style durability of a Traza glass chair mat will completely transform your workspace. And the Traza glass chair mats come with a lifetime warranty. So it's the last chair mat you will ever need. Order online at vitraza.com slash commentary. That's V I T R a Z Z a.com slash commentary. They offer 18 popular glass chair mat sizes and shipping is free. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Get 10% off any glass chair mat with promo code commentary at vitraza.com. Again, save 10% by using promo code commentary at V I T R a Z Z a.com slash commentary. Um, Okay, so here we are. Uh, You know, we're now uh, day three after uh, Joe Biden's, uh, day two, whatever, after Joe Biden's disgraceful exit speech from Afghanistan. Um, And uh, we have learned, among other things, that um, uh, Joe Biden had a call with uh, President uh, Ghani in which he uh, told Ghani uh, to put on a happy face. Abe? Abe? You want to talk about this a little bit? I mean,
1: what what strikes me most about it <clears throat> is how extraordinarily Trumpy it is. Um, he was he was on a phone call with Ghani uh, and he explicitly said, look, people are getting scared. They don't like the news coming out of Afghanistan, whether or not it's true. Say that your new military strategy against the Taliban is working. I think that will change a lot of things. Um, This is Trumpier than Trump. It's also disgraceful. Um, You you also um, would have a very hard time, although it won't stop people, from um, defending Biden on this whole process while continuing to blame the Americans who were uh, left behind in Afghanistan for not acting swiftly. Um, It is just yet another data point in the really growing and shockingly large anthology of lies that this administration has, has told about what's going on apart from the disaster itself, just the, the obfuscation has been remarkable. Um, Matt, mm-hmm.
0: as a, as a student, uh, as a colonist, it covers, you know, how Washington works for commentary. Uh, What do you make of the leak of this phone call? Uh, It's sort of interesting. Like, is there an Alexander Vindman on the National Security Council leaking the contents of Joe Biden's phone conversation with Ghani, by the way, which takes place in English because Ghani is all but an American. Uh, there's a fantastic piece in the New York Post uh, over the weekend about Ghani and his family. His daughter lives in Brooklyn. His son works for a hedge fund in Bethesda. You know, uh, you know, they, they, he came to work at the, I think at the World Bank or something in 1981 or 1982. They are purely American. He is largely an American. Uh, and I think you know Biden had this whole you know you're a part of the global Davos world here. Help me out. Like we're all on the same page. You know, come, you'll come to camp. They will all have fun. And then Ghani's like, well, you know, I don't actually want to have my head. I don't want to be disemboweled by the Taliban. So I'm going to leave now before they get to me the way they got. They got to they got to the uh, Afghan leader uh, when they took over in, in the 90s. Um yeah, and but I, I, so this tone of betrayal that he has about Ghani, I think, has that quality. It's like, hey, I thought we were we were amigos like what, what, what's going on here.
2: And then also suggests, uh, you know, that once again, Biden is lying when he says oh, we had no idea they were in such trouble. Right. We had no idea. Well, clearly, in the July 23rd call, he has some idea that the Taliban is making gains. Uh It's not just the content is is Trumpy, it's also the process of the leak, as you suggest, John, (laughs) right? I mean, as soon as Trump came into office, National Security Council leaks of his phone calls. uh, Remember the one with the Australian prime minister, I I think was early on. um, uh, And then that's continued through the Ukraine uh, imbroglio in uh, September of 2019. So yeah, it's safe to assume that there are some opponents of Biden's policy here who had access to the phone call and leaked the transcript. What's most infuriating uh, about this particular phone call is it happened on July 23rd. And he's saying, you know, talk up your strategy, do more, fight the Taliban. Well, that call is weeks after America had left Bagram, right? We we skedaddled on July 5th in the middle of the night. So here he is, after we've the military has left, the Taliban, of course, saw that began their uh takeover of all the provincial capitals uh the afghan national army saw that realized america is no longer here to support us we need to start making new calculations and biden has the gall to tell uh ghani uh put on i would say put on a happy face you know <laughs> when you're smiling you know uh, as your country is falling apart thanks to me th- thanks to my <laughs> yeah. my decision right the, uh, what I've been thinking about this somewhat, and I realized, you know the continuities between Trump and Biden on Afghanistan are, are have been commented on before, but it put me in mind of um, that that phrase uh, that uh, Alexander Dubcek, the um, Czech uh, socialist, you know, he's we're going to have socialism with a human face, and you know, Biden's foreign policy is America first with a human face, right? Uh, but it's worse in many ways than America first because it has it, it incorporates the worst. Of both for of both America first nationalism isolationism and the worst of liberal internationalism and <laughs> just to say it this way right he doesn't care uh, the, the the Trumpian nationalists they don't care about human rights but they never pretended to care <laughs> Biden pretends to care even has he does absolutely nothing even though he handed Islamism its greatest victory in a decade. Uh, even though it's a total catastrophe for the 30 million Afghans, their human rights are just snuffed out uh, because the Taliban take over. Right? So it, it has you have the, uh, the the rejection of human rights and democracy of the of the nationalists and uh, on the right, combined with the ineffectuality of liberal internationalism on the left, and moreover. You know, the one thing you can say about the nationalists uh, was that they were, Trump was a unilateralist at the end of the day. He was going to take action. It didn't matter what other countries thought. And of course, he got into fights with even our own allies because he calculated that some actions were necessary. Well, of course, Biden is uh, this liberal international multilateralist. And, And the multilateralism is cover for his ineffectuality, right? So, what does Blinken say whenever you say, oh, you've just created this? islamist state you've consigned by the way the 200 americans that are still there you know we got the 10 percent of americans that we didn't get um you've consigned them to this um hellscape and biden blinken will or biden will say or saki they'll say well we have 114 countries that are telling the taliban to live up to their commitments yeah 114 countries like you know it was that 114th country that will do the trick you know, 113 countries, the Taliban would say, go jump at a lake. But now that you had the now that Fiji has signed on,
0: we're going to oh, and you know and who hasn't would... signed on. Who hasn't signed on? China and Russia. Who? Oh, no, of course. Right. Yeah, and Russia. Yeah, right. right. So th- those are the countries you need to sign on. Uh, they're the ones that are trading partners. They're the ones who are. And
2: they'll never sign on. not. The two things, the multilateralism and the ineffectuality. Yeah. Work, work in tandem,
0: right? Yeah. Well, uh, they synergistic. You know, I mentioned this earlier in the week, but it's like uh, when uh, Blinken said, our military mission is over, but our diplomatic mission is just <laughs> beginning. That's why we're closing our embassy and we will have no personnel in <laughs> Afghanistan.
2: Well, that's the other, so that's another, uh, just one of the uh, platitudes of liberal nationalism that they combine with the Trumpian rejection of d- human rights and democracies. They say, well, you have to have a political solution, right? That's throughout this entire, throughout the collapse of Afghanistan, the, the administration kept saying, there was only a political solution to this problem. No, there wasn't.
0: There was yep. a military solution. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I mean, yeah. that's the, the Taliban never yeah. believed in a political solution. And they won. And, you know, the other thing is, and this this goes to this sort of a point that people who, uh, who are close watchers and close observers of the you know Israeli Palestinian Israeli Arab conflict over many decades um, know uh, know in their marrow which is that um, Americans and you know multilaterals are always looking for a solution they want to create a process that will lead to a solution and sometimes there is no solution and when there is a solution the thing is that the solution is apparent because of changes of heart and 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 things alter themselves and then it's just a matter of negotiating the details what matters is the change in perspective or the change in experience the process will not does not change hearts the process does not change minds the process leading to a solution is only something that can be manipulated by the person or the force that is less interested in the solution than the one who's promulgating it, right? It's like, if you're the one who's going in and saying, you know, we need to have a deal here, what do you need? Then the person on the other side is going to get most of what they want, and then they'll get what they want, and then they won't live up to the terms of the deal anyway. Sometimes there is no solution. Sometimes there is no diplomatic process that will lead to anything good. The diplomacy is about dealing with Discrete problems as they arise. Somebody goes missing. Someone's arrested and is in a jail in some godforsaken hellhole somewhere. That's why you have an ambassador there, to get that person out of jail. Not to create multilateral organizations that will save the world. Christine, sorry.
3: But this is also, the the other part of this is that they're not just using diplomacy. They're actually... Amplifying the Taliban's Own propaganda in a way it's kind of like Journalists uh, you know uh, when the Soviet Union was first formed it's like oh look at They're going to do such a great job look at all these things they're Doing it's so amazing Um, This is what they're saying they're they're basically Promoting this idea that It's a kinder gentler Taliban They're they're just the way they speak about the Taliban now is already giving them a legitimacy that they don't, don't need to have written down in paper or a seat on a UN council to, to enjoy. They are doing that for them, and they are buying the, this, this idea that this this group of terrorists who torture people and and you know put women back into the Middle Ages, the idea that these people are someone we should even be sitting across the table from negotiating with, we shouldn't have done them under Trump, and we certainly shouldn't be talking about them this way now, they're actually actively helping the Taliban in its Mission by buying into this propaganda and their PR.
1: Yeah, yeah, it goes exactly to Matt's point about how the Biden administration has the worst aspects of liberal internationalism because this is treating terrorist governments and bad actors as if they are potentially um, good players is an aspect of liberal internationalism. It is exactly what uh, the Obama administration did in regard to Iran, for example, right. pretending that the mullahs there were um, uh, kinder, gentler, wanted the best for their people, only wanted uh, an open hand uh, uh, extended from us, and we would get one in return. And Look, what, so the only uh,
0: government or the only presidency that sort of embraced Uh, A non-liberal internationalist frame, in fact, despite the fact that Obama sort of tried and Trump tried and all that, was the Nixon administration. And basically their point was, we live in this world and it sucks. Most of the people we deal with are terrible. And we have to, let's be honest, and we have to deal with them on their own terms because they're not going to do what we want them to do. So we have these tools at our disposal. We can bribe them we can pay them off i mean not that they said this explicitly but we can give them things so that there is a mutual exchange of mutual interest even though we loathe each other or we can you know uh, help them privately with problems they have and 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 you know smooth things out right ultimately that's what's going to happen with biden and the Taliban, right? He's going to attempt to ransom the Americans.
2: Right. But uh, it's, the, it's the Nixon doctrine, except partnering with the Taliban. I mean, right. that's just, the yeah. whole point of the Nixon doctrine was our allies are, the, are, are doing the fighting. We fund them. So if you wanted to be Nixon in this case, you would actually, it would be an argument for f- continuing to fund the Afghan government, right? And, right. and, and keeping the people there. But right. now we're backing ourselves into the position, as Christine suggests, that, we're, that uh, the Taliban are going to be our partners, you know, because right. I mean, now we have ISIS-K. Well, and the Taliban, they're helping us against ISIS-K. And, you know, I, as I think Jason Willick of the Journal pointed out uh, on Twitter today, is well, what happens when there's a group even worse than ISIS-K? Then it will be one hour working with ISIS-K and the Taliban against what did Trump call ISIS-X. You know, once we get to ISIS-X, who knows who we'll be partnering
1: with. <laughs> no, but, uh, to, to extend the, the comparison to Obama's treatment of Iran— so the Taliban and ISIS-K are the good mullahs and the bad mullahs, right? They're, they're, they're the, the moderate mullahs and the hardliners, you see. So we need to work yeah. with, the, with the moderates because you don't want to deal with the hardliners. And I think, you know, Americans are not being as suspicious as they should be um, when uh, we don't hear the first word about this group ISIS-K publicly. In, in popular press until it's time for us to become partners with the Taliban. Then suddenly we have this worse than the Taliban Taliban in in Afghanistan. Now, I'm not denying that 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 there's an ISIS group there. There is. And it's part of why we should remain there. Because yeah, but no, your terrorism, terrorism is not over.
3: No, like Taliban's our new girlfriend and isis is yeah. the crazy ex-girlfriend. So we yeah. really have to worry about her, even if we're not quite sure about our new girlfriend yet. I mean, I ridiculous. love
0: that analogy. I love that analogy almost as much as I love Superbeet heart chews. The essential part of any healthy daily routine, uh, they combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient grapeseed extract, extract that is unique to super beets heart chews. Because look, it's hard to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need throughout your day to keep a busy schedule. This helps you. Grapeseed extract has been the focus of scientific research for years due to its high concentration of antioxidants, which support cardiovascular health and overall wellness. The grapeseed extract used in Superbeet Heart Chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. You can't find this quality of grapeseed extract in just any product. This grapeseed extract is clinically studied, quality tested, traceable to the source, scientifically shown to support blood flow and healthy blood pressure. And just two delicious chews a day gives the blood pressure support you need and the energy you want. So support your heart health with delicious Superbeet Heart Chews. Get your Super Beats heart shoes today at superbeats.com slash commentary. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in the third for free. That's superbeats.com slash Federalist. So, Matt Continetti, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt and I uh, tweet at each other uh, and tweet. We, we, we text at each other regularly just to see who can depress the other worse but actually, hearing your voice and your, 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 your seeing your calm face on our, on our Zoom here um, is a, a mildly more pleasant experience, even though what you were saying is totally apocalyptic. So That's I'd true, like John. to thank I, you for I, that. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's true. Um, and uh, Noah will, I uh, hope, hopefully be back tomorrow for Abe and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.